welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be a bit more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please share widely with your friends and colleagues, and also please subscribe. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about inclusion, the inclusion of disabled and vulnerable people in humanitarian settings and humanitarian emergencies. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on to the Do One Better podcast, Alima Shivji, who is the CEO of Humanity and Inclusion UK. So Alima, welcome on board. Thanks, Alberto, and it's great to be here today. It's well, it's, I'm glad that you made the time. Tell us a little bit about uh, humanity and inclusion. Tell us a little bit about humanity and inclusion and what it's all about. Sure. So humanity and inclusion essentially exist to support people with disabilities and vulnerable people that are affected by poverty, conflict, disaster and exclusion to achieve their rights and live in dignity. We started in 1982, initially supporting victims of landmines that were fleeing to Thailand from Cambodia. And today our work covers around 60 countries where we support people with all types of disabilities from all types of causes essentially to achieve their rights and live in dignity. And we're a federated network, um, so we have uh, members around the world. And what we do matters because one in seven people in this world live with a disability. And in times of crisis, um, conflict or disaster, that number can, can go up. Our work is really to ensure that no one is left behind. We provide support, individual support, to men, women, boys and girls with disabilities. We change systems and attitudes, and we influence others to have a wider um, impact. And it's this combination of advocacy and operations, I think, which is really powerful. All of our advocacy is rooted in the evidence that we collect in the programs we, we deliver. So, for example, if I take the country of Sierra Leone, we have implemented model schools where we demonstrate how to include children with disabilities in the classroom, we then work with the Ministry of Education to develop a national policy to eventually roll this out across the, the country. But it also means we work with um, companies like Michelin Tires or Renault Cars to help embed inclusive employment and work practices. And it also means that we work on the front line of crises like Yemen, um, where we provide physiotherapy, mental health support and basic needs services uh, to people affected by conflict. Mm. And tell me about your geographic footprint. So are, are there particular areas that you're really focused on? So we've got a footprint pretty much worldwide. Um, so we're in about 60 countries and there's a quite a big mix between the Middle East, uh, North and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, South and Southeast Asia, uh, and a slightly smaller footprint in the Caribbean and the Americas. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the, uh, the offices, so you're heading up the UK, what are the main... Uh, hubs or, or, or centers of uh, activity in your in your organization? Uh, so I'm heading up the UK and we probably support, I think at the moment, probably about 25 of the uh, 60 countries where we operate in. And they're quite a mix um, all around the world, everywhere from uh, places like Yemen and Jordan uh, to Sierra Leone to Uganda, Kenya, um, Myanmar, uh, Pakistan, so it's quite quite a broad uh, quite a broad footprint. And inclusion, I mean, inclusion is one of those uh, topics that is relevant in the global north uh, as much as in the global south. But in the global north, we don't have a lot of the very severe problems that you have in the developing world. 
I can only imagine what it must be like if one has a disability and on top of it, you're coping with extreme poverty, no healthcare, poor infrastructure, no clean water. What are the main issues that you're grappling with in the developing world when you're trying to ensure that nobody's left behind? It, it's a mix. I think one of the big things that we grapple with is stigma and discrimination. In lots of parts of the world, people with disabilities are not seen um, on an equal footing with the rest of their communities. So there's a huge piece around attitudes and changing attitudes. Mm. Um, there's a huge piece around poverty. Um, you know, a lot of people live below the poverty line, um, but we know that people with disabilities are disproportionately uh, impacted. Um, you know, there's more people with disabilities that are out of work or underemployed than people without disabilities. Yeah. Um, some of the other key issues we grapple with is, you know, women with disabilities are twice as likely to be a victim of sexual um, and domestic violence than non-disabled women. Uh, and you have um, a general sense in the humanitarian crisis of invisibility. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we know from a study we did a few years ago that 75% uh, of um, people with disabilities that we surveyed worldwide reported that they don't have access to basic services like water, sanitation or food when there's a humanitarian crisis in their country. Um, so we know that a lot of people with disabilities are disproportionately at risk. Some of the challenges we face are also related to... Um, lack of education and awareness amongst the workforce. So health services, as an example, um, healthcare workers that uh, are not trained uh, to be mm -hmm. able to uh, support people with disabilities when they come for health services, uh, teachers in classrooms that haven't uh, had the training to include children with disabilities. So these are the sorts of things that we then try to tackle. And it's a significant percentage of the overall population who, who fall under your uh, remit. Absolutely. It's 15% of the world's population that uh, lives with a disability, one in seven. Wow. In terms of solving this problem, obviously, you can't do it entirely by yourselves. Who do you, who do you work with? How do you, um, how do you operate both in terms of getting funding, collaborating, uh, delivery partners on the ground? So we've got quite a right range of partners, and you're absolutely right. It's about working with others. Um, everything we do is in partnership. Um, all of our uh, long-term initiatives on the ground in the countries we operate in are in partnership, mostly with either local civil society. So a lot of that will be grassroots movements of people with disabilities themselves mm -hmm. um, and supporting people with disabilities uh, to, to make the change they want to make in their country. Um, right through to working with governments uh, to make changes at a national systemic level. Um, but we also work with um, other organizations that support people with disabilities, like ourselves, allies, if you like, mm -hmm. um, and, and more, much more widely. So we work with the United Nations, and we've got relationships with the uh, UNICEF, the UN Children's Agency, with the World Health Organization, um, and, and governments, including the one here. The UK government is a, is a close, uh, close ally and, and partner as well. Is it, um, is it difficult identifying delivery partners on the ground? Uh, because I know it's, it seems to be one of those perennial questions that people ask me. It's like, well, yes, you know, we, we'd like to do something in this country, uh, but we're not quite sure who to partner up with on the ground. How, does, how do you guys go about that? So I think it's actually one of the strengths of humanity and inclusion because where we're present, we are present at community level. We are present with primarily national staff. So 90% of our staff are national to the country we operate in. Um, and 
that means we've got really good local networks and really good local connections and it means we're embedded in communities um, and so identifying and working with partners is is much easier when you've got a, a presence and a real understanding at the grassroots level because you and uh, and you you have quite a bit of experience as i recall from from our conversation a while back uh you were in haiti you were you've lived in various countries as well Absolutely. So I have, um, over the years, worked absolutely. I've worked in Haiti. I was there before and after, uh, immediately after, actually, the, the major earthquakes 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I've lived and worked in South Sudan, in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh. Um, I've spent time in India and in the Philippines. Um, so I've had an opportunity to work very much on, on um, you know, directly with communities, directly on the front line. Um, and I guess that's what um, gives me some of the... the Definitely some of my, my passion for what I do today now as, as chief executive in the, in the UK is I can leverage my connection with our work, with the mm-hmm. communities we work with, um, to be able to lobby for change at a, at a more global level. Are, um, are all these countries, do they have some common denominators or is every instance really different from each other, every country really different from each other? I suppose the common denominator when I look at it within the frame of humanity and inclusion is is the exclusion quite often of um, people with disabilities and other marginalized mm. groups. Sometimes it's older people. Um, that's a common denominator. Stigma and discrimination is generally a common denominator. However, it plays out very differently in different countries. Um, so you really do need a really good local understanding. Yeah. Uh, to know what works. Um, you know, we might have a solution that works in one country. But it might not work so well in another because the context is different. That said, what's really interesting working for an organization as big as humanity and inclusion is that you can take the learnings from multiple countries and then adapt it to a context specific response or approach in another country. Mm. I imagine the one common denominator that absolutely everybody's grappling with right now is this novel coronavirus, the COVID-19 and, and the challenges that presents. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is it is as we, as we know from from being here in the UK, you know, this is something that's hitting the world, you know, at, at different moments, but certainly hitting everybody across the world. But what's interesting there is it is a common denominator, but the impact of it is quite different in different places. Um, one of my operations colleagues said on a call the other day, we're not dealing with one crisis. We are dealing with 55 or 60 crises because in each country, there's a different impact. So some countries have gone into full lockdown, even more severe than here. And other countries at the moment, it's still business as usual because the peak hasn't hit or that, you know, they don't know if the virus has really hit very hard. In some countries, you have a health system that's obliterated, you know, Yemen, five years of conflict and only 50% of the health centers are operating. Um, And you contrast that with a country like South Africa that has a much more stable health system, still far from adequate. Um, but it does mean that the the population is impacted uh, differently. Um, so it is a common denominator, but it is impacting different communities and different countries in, in slightly different ways. Hmm. One question that was lingering in my mind, and I really don't have the answer, and I think it applies to the UK as much as it does to Bangladesh, is what happens to those individuals who may not be able to go back to some sort of normal life because they have a health condition they have some sort of disability um what happens to those individuals once once sort of society starts unlocking down from COVID 19 
and these individuals need to go back into the labor market. They need to go into a job interview. They need to possibly be physically present. What sort of protections might one see for these individuals um, in, a, in a situation, in a reality where they won't be able to go to a face-to-face -face interview? They won't be able to go to the office necessarily. They might, if they have the luxury, they might have to do everything from home. And do you, is that at all a conversation to be had or that you're contemplating or? I think it's a really valid conversation. Um, I think the access to employment for people with disabilities is, is something that's, um, something, you know, we've been working on, on this for years. We know, um, and, and you know, there's really good evidence from the International Labour Organization. Mm -hmm. You know, you have um, almost 800 million men and women with disabilities who are already, um, you know, of working age, but the majority of them don't work. We know that when they do work, um, many people with disabilities, most people with disabilities earn less than people without disabilities. And we know that women with disabilities earn less than men with disabilities. So COVID-19 isn't something that's um, creating something that didn't exist before. It is both an opportunity and a challenge that comes on top of some systemic inequalities for people with disabilities. Um, And, and I think on the employment piece, it's it's a mixed it's a mixed picture, I think, because we've seen um, certainly I've seen a lot of um, media around, you know, could COVID-19 be an equalizer for people with disabilities? And then mm -hmm. on the other hand, you hear the opposite. And I think we kind of expect to see a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, we know that um, some companies are really um, already starting to make announcements around long term working from home policies. We've heard um, stuff come out of Twitter, for example. Um, and that could potentially be a real equalizer for some people with disabilities. Um, disability advocates have been advocating for, for years, if not decades, for working from home as being a reasonable accommodation for some people with disabilities. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, that only works if the, the entire employment infrastructure is adapted. Um, you know, it's not it's not as simple as saying everybody can work from home. It's about making sure that when you are working from home, you've got the right tools and technology in place for people with different types of impairments to still engage with the workplace. It means making sure you've got reasonable accommodation policies in place. Um, it means your hiring and your recruitment is is adapted. Um, what I really hope to see is COVID-19 creating the opportunity to build back better. Mm -hmm. in companies and whether that's a local SME uh, in Kenya or whether that's a multinational looking at it through their entire global footprint and their supply chain. Um, I, I think there's some real opportunities to build back better. And there are some companies that are already ahead of the curve on that. Um, some of our work includes working with companies to help them um, have more inclusive uh, workplace and hiring practices. Mm -hmm. We do everything from, you know, we've, we've done sort of short four or five day uh, diagnostic uh, work with companies in places like Turkey where, you know, you sort of work with the company to look at what are some of the challenges they need to overcome mm -hmm. and then work, you know, they work out an action plan to deliver. Right to the other end of the spectrum where we have a two-year partnership with Michelin in India where we've got somebody, an expert um, embedded in the Michelin team to really do a root and branch review um, in the company and to come out the other end with some really um, positive, inclusive practices. So I think with COVID-19, there's, there's a real opportunity, I think, to get more people with disabilities into the workplace, so long as 
companies are really looking at this in an inclusive way. One of our big concerns, and this has been voiced by the United Nations Secretary General, mm-hmm. um, is is that people with disabilities are possibly more likely to lose their job right now as companies may need to downsize, might need to be doing layoffs, right. and that they might face more difficulties in returning to the workplace. Um, and so there's a real... Um, there's a real impetus, I suppose, on on companies and organisations to to remember uh, that um, equality and inclusion matters even in the time of crisis. Indeed, indeed. Any company who's listening to this right now, what's the best way of uh, getting in touch with you or with um, with humanity inclusion? Do, is it best to just reach out to a local chapter, or what, what do you recommend in terms of uh, perhaps a, a website reference to start with, and then? Uh, next steps that they might be able to do to explore this further if they're, if they're contemplating exactly these questions in their boardrooms right now? Sure. Um, two web reference. So they could come to our website directly and we can redirect to them if it's not um, our team, but it's humanity-inclusion.org.uk. Um, but the other website I'd also recommend companies look at is uh, workwithdisability.org. Um, we had some seed funding a few years ago to develop a, a workplace toolbox. Um, and essentially this was in response to questions we constantly get from companies. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I do reasonable adjustments in a low income context? What does that look like when I, wa- when I want to hire somebody with a hearing impairment in my factory or hire somebody with a physical impairment in my office? What, how do I do that practically? Um, and essentially the toolbox helps companies um, develop a personalized response uh, to the needs in their company, in their industry, in their context. It's sort of like a, a marketplace. So there's sharing of ideas and, you know, a company in Senegal might look on there and see an idea that was implemented in Cambodia and be able to, to build on that. Um, so I think that's certainly one element of it. I think if companies are looking, however, more broadly at sort of what else can they do beyond within their own company, you know, a lot of companies um, give charitably. Mm-hmm. They have a social justice objective. And I think I would encourage companies, and I suppose the same goes to any other philanthropist, whether that's a foundation or an individual, where is your money going? What are you financing? Are you financing something that will reach the most marginalized in society? Um, I think there's some real potential uh, for, for givers to to ensure that people with disabilities are included. Um, and are not left behind. Hmm. If there are any philanthropists out there listening to the show right now or any foundation leaders, what's um, what sort of funding do you get right now or who, who are your main backers? What um, what does your income generation look like? So we have a mixed picture. We really pride the diversity of our donors. We have funding from individuals. So we have individuals that give us, you know, five pounds a month, mm-hmm. uh, right through to major gifts. We have corporates, we have foundations, we have governments that fund us. Um, and this diversity of funding is really important to us. It, it fits with our values and our ethics. Um, and what I mean by that is by having a diversity of funding, it means that we can leverage uh, different types of funding for different things. It might mean having funding to invest in innovation. Um, for example, we're doing a lot of work on 3D printing and on innovative education tools. Hmm. We are able to then also use money um, flexibly when there's a crisis to respond immediately. Um, and it also means that in times of conflict, we can uh, use money flexibly so that we don't um, 
you know, we, we've got quite strong policies about not taking uh, money from governments that might seen might be seen as parties to a particular conflict. So that that diversity of funding for us is hugely important, and that's where um, philanthropic giving is is really powerful because not only does it enable us to deliver some incredible work, it means that the philanthropists can come on a journey with us, mm-hmm. and what they support will be leveraged. Uh, multi, uh, you know, it'll be multiplied uh, by other gifts that we also receive. Yeah. How did you get into all of this? What uh, what drove you to, um, did you wake up one day and say, this is my life, I, I want to go into this field? Or was it, uh, it just happened through other ways? Totally through other ways. So, mm. I mean, I grew up in a very sort of philanthropic family. We fundraised uh, for local and international causes. I wrote letters for Amnesty. I worked, I volunteered my local hospital. But I never really saw any of that as a career. It was sort of, it was part of the ethos of my family, my community and my faith. Um, In the end, I trained as a physiotherapist uh, and I worked in Canada, but I also worked in Australia and New Zealand. Um, But I always felt something was sort of missing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at some point I got an opportunity to volunteer in Bangladesh and I was actually using my physio skills in a developing country setting and all of a sudden you know something clicked and I thought actually this is it this is what I want to be doing I want to be working um, with using what skills I have um, I want to be making a real change in this world I, I, I want to really work on inclusion um, and that was that was quite a big thing for me um, and it was then that I realized that actually I could make a career out of what for me had been a passion um, and eventually I, I made it to Humanity and Inclusion, which back then was known as Handicap International. Okay. Um, and my background as a physio meant that I could use my clinical skills. Um, so in Sri Lanka, I was training health workers of the Ministry of Health. In South Sudan, I was partnering with the Ministry of Health and other organizations uh, to train nurses on managing gunshot wounds, people mm-hmm. that have been injured in tribal fighting. I used my clinical skills in Haiti after the earthquake. There was, you know, hundreds of amputations. So helping people uh, rebuild their lives after having lost a limb. Um, so there was a re- there was a real fit for me. Um, and today, while obviously I don't do any of that clinical, that frontline work anymore, um, I I use that background uh, to help influence wider change. Still, how rewarding a journey that must be, huh? It's it's been fantastic. It has been absolutely fantastic, and still continues to be. I imagine. I imagine so. And tell me, um, in the South Sudan, are you are you very active in the South Sudan now? We are still absolutely. We are very active in South Sudan. We continue to work with the Ministry of Health, mm-hmm. um, with grassroots organisations. Uh, we also South Sudan's a, a an example of where we really try to leverage our impact. So we're part of quite a big health program there um, where we bring in the disability expertise so we work with a lot of other actors to teach them about disability to ensure that their work is disability inclusive so that the impact is much bigger than what we could do just ourselves Um, so while we have some direct provision a lot of it is supporting other organizations and we also support Sudanese South Sudanese refugees that are now living in Uganda Mm. as Mm. well I'm asking about South Sudan because uh or, well, last year now, we had Chris Trod, who is the uh, British ambassador to South Sudan. So you were shedding a bit of light on the context there. And, uh, well, if we think we have problems in the UK or, you know, it pales in comparison to, to, to the realities uh, that prevail over there. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think South Sudan is is a country that has seen decades and decades of conflict, very few quiet periods. Um, and it's it, it means that it's very, you know, there's a long way to go for that country. I mean, I was there 12, 13 years ago, mm-hmm. and I was there when the first tarmac road was laid in the country. Mm-hmm. The, the town I worked in, I was there when the first mobile tower was built. I mean, can you imagine going to a country or an area of a country where there are there are no mobile towers or no roads. Um, you know, South Sudan has lost decades of development because of decades of conflict, which which continue. And it's the civilians, it's the, it's the people of South Sudan that pay the toll. Hmm. Um, and people with disabilities pay an extremely heavy toll for that. Um, often left behind, we've heard, uh, you know, I was back in South Sudan a few years ago and I, I was speaking with... Um, one of the people with disabilities we support. And at one point, you know, he had to tell his family to leave him behind when they fled the fighting because he knew that if they took him with them, they would be slowed down and there was a risk that they would all die. Um, you know, so he he sent his family ahead. He was one of the lucky ones. He did finally eventually make it to a refugee camp uh, or a displaced persons camp in, in Juba, the capital. Um, but we know we've heard a lot of stories of people with disabilities that have had to be left behind. Families have to make, unfortunately, very, very difficult choices in times of crisis. And that's something we're trying to change. So in, in a context like South Sudan, we have been providing you know financial assistance to families so that they can make choices. Um, they, they have the power to choose what they do and how they do it because they have a little bit of financial capital behind them. Mm. Is um, well, you know, twenty thirty is not that far away from now. It's uh, it's a target year for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. How are you feeling about the SDGs and whether we are heading in the right direction? Are you feeling optimistic that uh, the next ten years will be a, will be a positive uh, development, or how, how are you viewing the world right now? bit of a mixed picture um to give a bit of context so the millennium development goals the the sort of precursors of the sdgs um had no mention of disability so if i look at it purely from the disability angle the sdgs or agenda 2030 is a huge step forward because the sdgs have uh, leave no one behind as at the heart of them um and within that people with disabilities are identified as one of the groups that must not be left behind there are disability inclusive targets and goals. Um, this is a huge step forward. So I think the SDGs, when they um, launched, were you know very much seen as as, as a huge win um, for mm-hmm. people with disabilities. Um, and and the question is, will they be achieved? I guess my my worry is um, Will there be enough resourcing behind the SDGs? I think there's been a lot of emphasis on, you know, the SDGs will only be achieved if all of us come together. And that includes private sector financing as much as government financing, innovation, communities, civil society. Um, I think there's potential. We've got 10 years ahead of us. Mm. So I'm 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 feeling I'm feeling optimistic. um, But I think it will really, you know, for me, success by 2030 would look like in an ideal world, um, you know, there's no longer a divide between um, children with, with and without disabilities in the classroom. You know, children with disabilities are much less likely to be in school today. Mm. I hope that by 2030 that divide no longer exists. Um, we know that, you know, 75% of people with disabilities say that they are left out of humanitarian response. I hope by 2030 that that number is down to zero. Yeah. Um, those would be my hopes.
is it realistic? I don't know, but I think you need to have a really ambitious target to work towards. Uh, if you set your sights too low, you're not ambitious in what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. It's interesting um, in an unpleasant way, but it's, a, it's a, a reality that I've come across as well. I was doing some work in Eastern Europe and, um, and you know, some families with school children, uh, school children who, who might be disabled, um, sometimes they don't even bring the children to school, not necessarily because the infrastructure isn't there, but there's this stigma. Um, it just seems like it's a very complex topic. It's not just one lever here or there. There's various various elements that you need to consider, isn't, aren't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the key thing there is to really understand the context you're operating in. So we sort of operate with a, a model of access to services um, as a route to achievement of rights. Mm -hmm. But in order to access services, um, you need to look at where the barriers are. So is the barrier stigma and discrimination? And is that at the family level or at the community level or at the teacher's level? Or if, the, if you're talking about schools, um, you have to look at infrastructure. You need to look at the services themselves, national policies. Um, so every context is going to be different. And, you know, picking up on, on your example, we work very strongly with representative organizations of people with disabilities, of parents of children with disabilities as well. Um, and we help to um, reinforce local community champions and at the grassroots level and you work at community level you build um, trust and you can demonstrate positive change and having one um, parent of a child with disability um, influencing other parents in a community is hugely powerful and that's mm. that's something we we see as a um, as a really important element of of making change and making change sustainable mm. what's the one key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode what would that be I think my one key takeaway would be let's remember that people with disabilities are the world's uh, largest minority and that all of us have a role to play and um, everyone from philanthropists to campaigners to to companies to foundations uh, governments we all have a role to play um, have a look around you think about what you're what you're engaging with are you what what campaigns are you signing up to where are you giving your gifts if you're giving a gift are you giving um, in a way that ensures that uh, the most marginalized people are impacted, that people with disabilities are, are recipients of, of your gifts. And there's different ways to do that. You can ensure that you are gifting um, to a portfolio of partners uh, within which you've got some that work directly with people with disabilities. You can be, you know, as a foundation, for example, you can be encouraging all of your partners to work in a disability inclusive way. We all have a role to play to leave no one behind and to achieve the lofty goals of Agenda 2030. Mm, I love that. Alima, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Really wonderful. And to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. As always, please subscribe, please share. It makes a huge difference and it's always very much appreciated. Alima, thank you. Really insightful and uh, here's to continued success. My pleasure and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast 
is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <laughs>